Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be one of your hosts today. And joining me, as always, is Tanner. And actually, today is a very, very special day. It is Tanner's birthday. (laughs) Uh, Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. It was a lovely surprise. <laughs> so, yeah, no better way to spend your birthday than uh, in the podcast minds, right? Yeah, literally. This is like the thing I spend the most time doing, so I, I might as well be here on my birthday. Yesterday at work, I was in the middle of teaching, and then my boss and two of my coworkers came in with a a box of 12 cupcakes. Okay, nice. For me, and then I obviously like shared those with everyone else. and Guarded them like a badger guarding its nest? Yesterday was like not my birthday, so like... I was confused uh, when they came in, like who it was for, <laughs> but it was mine. And nice. it's been uh, good so far. Um, it's nice to have it on a Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. Really, as an adult, it's a lot less fun when your birthday falls on like a Wednesday and you're like, okay, cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to work today. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun. Um, I guess really it's, it's another big day in our podcast field. Um, a lot of people are really excited it's Titanic Day. Just let Celine wash over you. Enjoy it. And that's enough of that before we get hit with a copyright strike. I, um, I'll hear that again tonight because tonight is the Titanic watch along with Alexia from Titanic Talk Line and a bunch of other cool people. Uh, yeah, that's cool. It, it will have already happened by the time you hear this, but hopefully some of you have seen it and will be able to participate. That uh, As will my birthday. So whenever <laughs> you listen to the episode, you can wish me happy birthday. That's a that's a bit that I, I stole from a, a Loreman uh, episode I just listened to. But yeah, nice. whenever you hear this is my birthday. Well, what else have you been up to? Uh, what you've been watching, doing, reading? We finally started the new season of Succession. That's a show that Katie watched first. I think she watched the first two seasons first, and then we watched those. We rewatched those together, and then we watched season three, and then now it's season four of it. It's a show I didn't really expect to like that much, but it's it's good. It's it's a it's a well done show. The drama's interesting for a show that's just about people like refusing to sign pieces of paper or yelling numbers <laughs> into phones. I think I've I've seen clips of that on TikTok, but I've not actually watched it. There's there's good characters in it. Like there's 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 good acting. Brian Cox is really great as like the mm-hmm. patriarch of the family. I forget which Culkin brother it is. I think it's Kieran Culkin is in it, and his character is really great. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of good performances in it. It's one where you're definitely at least me watching it for the characters more so than the plot because it's nice. For me, the plot seems to be really repetitive. It's it's kind of the yeah. same thing of like, oh, we, we're going to merge with this company. No, this company is going to merge with this other company and, um, you know, outbid us on whatever market share percentage thing. And it's always cool, though, when there's actors that are talented enough to, like, create a character that you care about, even if the plot isn't all that interesting. It's totally a show I didn't think that I would enjoy, but I watched it because Katie said how good it was. And I, I really enjoyed it. Nice. We we only watched the first episode of the new season, so we're going slow. Cool, yeah, that's uh, that sounds 
interesting. I'll probably check that out at some point. There's so many shows that I need to watch. Yeah, and the other thing I need to watch is the the Last Kingdom movie came out yesterday on Netflix. Cool. Um, they did, I guess they did, I think it was five seasons of the show uh, that I really enjoyed. And I like the Bernard Cornwell book series that they're based on. And the, they're they're kind of culminating the whole series with a movie nice. called Seven Kings Must Die. So I'll watch that at some point this weekend. I'm cool. looking forward to that. Uh, let's see. What have I been up to? Uh, we took engagement pictures. Me and Darcy did this week. Very cool. That was fun. Uh, went down to the Oregon district of Dayton. Uh, there's a lot of cool, like cobblestone streets, uh, like kind of row house looking area and everything. It definitely kind of has like a older vibe to it. It kind of looks very East coast and everything there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, there's also a lot of like bars and stuff down there. So it was a cool place to take some pictures it's always nice when you have a photographer that makes you enjoy taking pictures because me as someone who hates having my picture taken, I think that's a skill. <laughs> if you hear that as Oregon district instead of Oregon district, it sounds like something from Osmosis Jones <laughs> going down to the Oregon district. They, everyone here calls it the Oregon district. And I, I never, I never liked that. I, I pronounce those two words basically the same. Yeah. Oregon. <laughs> Uh, what else? Uh, I've been listening to the last podcast on the left. I'm not a huge true crime guy. We've talked about that. We make fun of true crime. They do a little bit of different stuff. They dabble in like paranormal true and true crime and pretty irreverent, which is about the only way I can listen to that stuff is if it's just not super serious. Like, I don't know. I just I can't get into the um, stay sexy and don't get murdered stuff. Like I kind of I have to have these like calling out these murderers for just being awful people. Mm-hmm. Um, I've started another book, uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by D. Brown. Classic. Um, it's dated. It's definitely dated. Uh, but overall, I think it is a great account. And I think that there's like some benefit in reading a source that is important but dated in that mm-hmm. it was really one of the first books that in the mainstream dealt with like it wasn't just the happy settlers needing a little elbow room. Like mm-hmm. it was a genocide. Yeah, I mean, you still read, I mean, if you, like older sources and older descriptions of it call it the Battle of Wounded Knee, which is pretty gross. And mm-hmm. and it's, like you, you say about that, like kind of reframing it into greater perspective of what it actually was. You look at how many medals of honor were awarded during wars against Native Americans on the plains and just the concept of like uh, what theoretically the Medal of Honor is supposed to be and how many of them were quote unquote earned. Um, I think it's lines up by donkeys that said like any medal of honor before world war one is really sus <laughs> so yeah i've been i've started that like it's it's not the easiest read in the sense that like it deals with some heavy stuff mm-hmm. but it is it's good it's a it's a good resource but uh cool. yeah that, that's what i've been up to but uh well that and researching this episode so with that let's get into it let's talk about a shipwreck uh today we're going to be talking about the alaskan there's a lot of vessels with very similar names. So mm-hmm. this one, like I had to do a little research in finding it. I actually found this story and put the name, like I wrote the name down. And then the next day I tried to find it again and couldn't. So this is the Sidewheeler Alaskan. I noticed that. Yeah. When I was looking for it, cause I ended up spending a few minutes reading about, I think it was the called the SS Alaska. Uh huh. Yeah. Different vessels. And I was reading about that. I was like, this doesn't seem like this is the notes. <laughs> And then, yeah, I found like the page, the first page I saw was like the Wikipedia page and it was like 
parentheses side wheelers. Okay, we're rolling now. All right, so the Alaskan, she is built in 1883 by Delaware River Iron Shipbuilding and Engine Works in Chester, PA. Uh, she's the type of vessel that we're pretty familiar with at this point. She's a sidewheel steamer. Think of something similar to the Lady Elgin that we previously covered. So, honestly, some of the more interesting types of ships that we uh, talk about. Like This is one of my favorite eras of shipwrecks. Yeah, they're fascinating. Uh, she's 276 feet long. She has a 40-foot beam, 14-and-a-half-foot draft. So, pretty large for her day. You know, she's not the Titanic, but um, she's not small, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, she has an almost identical sister ship by the name of Olympian. The Alaskan is a little bit bigger. She's able to accommodate 300 passengers in her cabin configuration, whereas the Olympian is only about 250. And they can both accommodate around 900 in a day excursion configuration. Wow. You know, it's just a matter of do you have staterooms or do you just have open space? A newspaper at the time commented on the Alaskan. She's a little larger and more powerful than her sister vessel, but has not so handsome an interior. The upper saloon is 240 feet long, 30 wide, and 12 high, with a dome and ceiling. 70 staterooms and four family rooms or bridal chambers comprise her first-class accommodations. So yeah, you can see that the uh, the Olympian is kind of built in a little more of an ornate style, whereas the Alaskan just accommodates more people. So it's kind of that give and take, but overall they're pretty similar vessels. Um, and both of these vessels are owned by the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company. These vessels were tagged with the unfortunate nickname of Henry Villard's White Elephants. It's never good. I don't know much about the history of the term White Elephant. Like, I know now we use it as, like, something you wouldn't want. But I guess, was, did that also have that meaning back then? Absolutely. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely something that became a kind of problem. Okay. Uh, so a little bit more about the Oregon Railway Navigation Company. Their president is Henry Villard, the unfortunate man with the white elephants. He is a rich Bavarian immigrant who actually came to the United States as a teenager to avoid confrontation with his more conservative and traditional father. This man lives a life that's like only possible at this time in history. I was actually reading about his, his early life mm-hmm. and kind of the time period he was living in and it it's very much in line with the Bismarck biography I was just reading mm-hmm. and all those like kind of the revolutions that were sweeping Europe at the time and how there was this, this revolution in Prussia and in, in like the German States. And that's kind of where Bismarck gets his, his springboard into influence is being a controlling figure standing against this, this kind of threat against monarchy. It's interesting to see this kind of played out with, I guess what you'd call like more everyday people. Like what did this do to like families here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Villard would work his way westward, living in Cincinnati, Ohio, Peoria, Illinois, and ultimately Chicago, Illinois. Uh, along the way, he'd find work uh, working uh, with different newspapers. So I, th- mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. Like you could just walk up to a newspaper and be like, I shall be a reporter for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, additionally, in 1856, he attempted to establish a colony of free soil Germans in Kansas. Nice. This man's like a living Mark Twain story. <laughs> uh, during the American Civil War, he worked as a correspondent for the New York Tribune attached to the Army of the Potomac. 
And really, the Civil War would have a huge impact on him. Uh, Later in 1866, he would cover the Prussia-Austrian War for the Chicago Tribune. And between these two experiences of covering these two wars, he would actually become a staunch pacifist after seeing the horrors of war. Mm. And then in 1866, he would marry the daughter of William Lloyd Garrison, who is a you know, major anti-slavery figure nice. in American history. Very cool. Yeah, a little bit about his reporting during the um during the Civil War. I was reading some articles about him and 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 some of the things that he saw and some of the things that he was able to bring back and share with people because the Civil War is kind of one of the early wars where you actually have a reporting structure of people going to battlefields and reporting mm-hmm. back. Um, I know that was a big that was a big part in the public perception of the Battle of Shiloh is the fact that you had photographers, you had reporters on hand to to show people how terrible this was. Right. And w- kind of one of his big uh, moments was the Battle of Fredericksburg. So you know, Civil War people will know that name is kind of like a black day for the Union Army um, at Fredericksburg, and. I'm reading here from this article, Inconvenient Truth by Dwayne Schultz. This is from uh, America's Civil War in November 2018, uh, saying, During a meal, Henry Wilson, a well-connected Massachusetts Republican senator who knew that Villard had been at Fredericksburg, came to his table. What's the news, he asked. Have we won the fight? Villard told him plainly and clearly that it had been yet another staggering defeat for the Union, leaving a large number of casualties. The Army of the Potomac was in disarray and in danger of being overrun if Lee decided to counterattack. Villard urged the senator to tell the president immediately how serious the situation was. Also, a side note here, Villard and Lincoln actually had a bit of a relationship already because Villard had covered the mm-hmm. senatorial debates between Lincoln and Douglas in 1858. Mm-hmm. So they, they had a relationship already. Um, uh, continuing to quote from the same article. Uh, Villard, who had known the president since 1858 and as a reporter often interviewed him, recounted the action at Fredericksburg, saying that in his view, it was the worst defeat the Union Army had ever suffered. Lincoln, looking increasingly upset, asked several detailed questions. Villard recommended that Lincoln order Burnside to withdraw across the Rappahannock and not try to attack Lee's well-defended positions on the south side. Lincoln smiled sadly, thanked Villard for coming, and said, I hope it is not as bad as all that, Henry. So, yeah, I mean, this is a guy who's on a a first name basis with Abe Lincoln. Kind of like you said about this was a time when you could just come over, walk up to a newspaper, get a job. And then, you know, in not too much time, you're you're friends with the president. You know, who could write a great hip hop rap play about this? I think we do know. I think we know (laughs) the answer to this. (laughs) We're not doing it again. We're not We're not writing another one right now. All right. So by 1874, he had visited Oregon. And he's impressed with the natural resources in the area. And he decides to try to gain control over transportation routes in the region. This is back when you could just decide to be like, I shall be a transportation baron now. <laughs> By 1875, he was president of the Oregon Steamship Company and the Oregon and California Railroad. Hmm. I have no idea like what qualifications he has to be in this position, but but there he is. He's there. Sounds like a CEO today. <laughs> in 1879, he would acquire the Oregon Steam Navigation Company and combine the three companies into one. 
This company would be called the Oregon Railroad and Navigation Company. Hmm. Just all subtle variations of the same names. (laughs) Very cool. Uh, In 1884, the Alaskan would transit the Straits of Magellan and make her way to the Pacific Northwest. So remember, all that backstory is to tell us that the Alaskan is owned by the company that Henry Villard is running. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Alaskan and her sister ships were designed on something that was successful around the Chesapeake Bay. However, if you're familiar with like American geography at all, the Chesapeake Bay is on the East coast and very different than the Pacific Northwest. Mm. Yeah. Chesapeake Bay, generally a pretty calm area to operate in. There's Mm -hmm. a reason that the U S Navy's like main naval base is in Norfolk and Newport news around the Chesapeake Bay. It's, it's a very convenient place. Pacific Northwest is a little more inhospitable. So as a result of this and not being designed for those conditions, these ships were never profitable. And they almost immediately became a money sink. I'm thinking back and I want to say it was like the Valencia we talked about. And I don't know if it was the same situation where she had changed locations, but that's another one I remember with the Pacific Northwest where it was kind of like in these conditions, this kind of ship and everyone kind of knew well, something's going to happen to this vessel. Mm-hmm. It was the opposite of the Titanic, where right. <laughs> everyone thought she was going to sink. Uh, so Fritz Timmen, in his book, Blow for the Landing, A Hundred Years of Steam Navigation on the Waters of the Western States. This financial genius, who once monopolized the Northwest's rail and water transportation, must have suffered a lapse of common sense when he ordered the pair constructed in Delaware. It is interesting that, you know, you would have this thing constructed in Delaware, sail it around South America to bring it to the West Coast mm-hmm. in a design that hasn't been proven in that region. I don't know. Like, I can only assume that he must have had like business connections with these people and like was like, here you go, here's some business. Did he get it built like for cheap compared to what he could do in the Northwest? He must have. And I mean, at the time, the Northwest, as we'll see, is not quite as developed. So Mm -hmm. there may not have been facilities to build a vessel this big in the Pacific Northwest. But surely I would think San Francisco by then would have capabilities of doing that. Just very interesting that you would you would make that choice. I mean, we talked uh, in the Whaleback episode, the city of Everett, how in that situation, the city of uh, city of Everett had to or one of the whalebacks had to come around South America and basically spit out a shipyard onto the shore of Everett, Washington. And then that is kind of the town that grew up around it. Um, but there was nothing there. So they had to sort of bring the infrastructure with them. Yeah, it's a very interesting time. But it's still sort of the frontier. Like it's still being settled in, in the Pacific Northwest at this time. By white people. Yes, by white people. <laughs> uh, so the Alaskans' first assignment is on the Columbia River. Um, If you're not familiar with the Columbia River, uh, Astoria kind of sits at the mouth of that, where it meets the ocean. And then that works its way up towards Portland, and you can access Portland via the Willamette River. The Columbia River is very much navigable. It's a pretty big and broad and deep river for uh, at least that portion of it. So you can actually run these kind of vessels in it, no problem. However... Her size does become a limiting factor in that she can't really go any further inland than Portland. Portland is actually a deep water port, but she really can't go further upriver because she's just not designed to do that. As we know, um, so many of the steamboats are 
flat-bottomed, very mm-hmm. shallow draft vessels, and she just is not that. Yeah, when I, when you said that she had a fourteen and a half foot draft um, for one of these side wheel steamers that you know typically you see on rivers, like that's that's a pretty big draft for navigating most inland rivers. Um, and keep in mind, she's based on a design that's really supposed to be in the Chesapeake Bay and then the coastal waters like that. So she's designed for like light ocean duty, basically. She would actually develop something of a rivalry with the steamboat Telephone, which was touted as the fastest steamboat in the world. Named after the amazing new technology. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny. Can you imagine, like, I guess it would be like having something named like a metaverse now, like the SS Metaverse. <laughs> Don't get on that. <laughs> oh, except like the Telephone was a successful invention and the metaverse you know, is, is the metaverse. The SS, the Tesla. <laughs> no, thanks. So if you recall in episode 93 about the steamboat Mazelle, there's a lot of pride attached with the speed with which these vessels operate. Oh, yeah. Um, so that was actually a really big thing. Like There's newspaper reportings of the telephone and the Alaskan and them setting different speed records. Unfortunately for the Alaskan, she was able to operate very quickly. However, due to her size, she also <laughs> operated very expensively. Uh, she consumed enormous amounts of coal. That seems like another limiting factor on like how great she actually is. Yeah, like she's able to be competitive and everything with service, but if you're spending two thirds more than your competitor, you're not winning, even if you're providing a better service. So in 1888, both ships, by both ships, I mean the Alaskan and her sister, the Olympian, are transferred to what was hopefully more suited waters the Puget Sound. Hmm. So kind of the thinking is, well, the Puget Sound, which is where Tacoma, Seattle, places like that are, it's more protected water. It's uh, it's more like the Chesapeake Bay area. So she can operate, you know, kind of a circle route in there. And she would actually run a route between Tacoma, Seattle, and Port Townsend, and then make her way up to Victoria, British Columbia, before returning back to Seattle. So this work is a little bit more in line with what she's meant to do. Uh, She would only serve on this route, though, for about a year because it became obvious that major maintenance was required on her hull. See, that time on the Columbia River had taken a pretty big toll on her. The problem is the scope of the work was such that a dry docking would be required. Oh, no. The biggest problem with this is that the Pacific Northwest lacked any dry dock facility big enough to service the side wheeler. You were seeing that thing where it's just not developed enough yet Mm -hmm. up there for this type of vessel. Rather, most work for larger vessels there was done with wooden gridirons. And I'd never heard of this before, but this sounds really interesting. These are large wooden frames that would be weighed down by stones and placed on like a sandbar or a mudflat. So the vessel would be floated over the frame And then the crew would wait for the tide to go out. They'd wait for low tide, take the stones off, and it would lift the vessel up. And then at this point, they would frantically work on the vessel (laughs) before the incoming tide. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, basically, like, once the tide went out, like, it was go. Everyone work right now. The problem is the Alaska needed repairs that were a little more substantial. And this just was not feasible for Mm -hmm. the work that was required of her. In addition to that, they would have had to construct a gridiron that was large enough to contain her. So this Ah, was never really an option. That's fascinating. I've never thought about that. 
in these sort of pre-modern technology eras is like just the problems that come with having a ship that's too big. How do you even work on it? Yeah, it is. It's really interesting. Um, I'll have to do some more reading about that because that is not something I'd ever thought about before. So as a result of this, the decision is made that she would be sailed to San Francisco, California, which did have the necessary facilities. So again, those not familiar with the geography of North America, Seattle is kind of at the ex- extreme northwest of the United States. And San Francisco is a good ways south of there on the Pacific coast. Talking hundreds of miles, this would be a pretty substantial journey in the Mm -hmm. ocean. Alaskan would begin her journey by sailing out of the Puget Sound and around the Olympic Peninsula. She then made her way up the familiar waters of the Columbia and Willamette Rivers to Portland. I'm not sure why she stopped in Portland first. It doesn't, I, I couldn't find any real reason. I'm assuming probably for some paperwork, logistical reasons, um, having to do with, you know, the owners and the company. Catch a Blazers game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Catch a Blazers game, see what's going on. Regardless of that, uh, she would depart under the command of Captain R.E. Howes with a crew of 34. So she would make her way back down the river, and she would cross the Columbia Bar around midday on May 11th, 1889. At that point, she would make her turn southwards towards San Francisco in the open ocean. I'm stressing in the open ocean. (laughs) Uh, So she would actually make this journey in ballast. She would not be carrying any passengers or cargo. And that's despite there being so much interest from citizens around the Puget Sound. There was a lot of demand. Like People wanted to take a trip to San Francisco on her. Mm -hmm. People wanted to ship things on her. And the company was like, no, no, we're good. We're going to go empty. It's a little suspicious. Yeah. So she's able to make nine knots and noted that the weather was good with a light rain and a light wind as she passed Yakina Head Lighthouse around 11 p.m. A couple fun facts about Yakina Head Lighthouse. Um, it's actually used in the movie The Ring as oh, cool. the Moscow Island Lighthouse. Hmm. Um, I looked at some pictures like it's absolutely beautiful. It's been a long time since I've watched the movie The Ring. I know. Uh, I I actually thought about that, too, when I saw that. (laughs) Could be a good rewatch. The Lighthouse has been featured in the film Hysterical and in the TV series The Nancy Drew Mysteries. Cool. Today, it's part of the Yokina Head Outstanding Natural Area, and it's an absolutely beautiful landscape where cliffs meet the sea. Does the outstanding there mean that it's excellent or that it's like set apart from something else? I wasn't sure. That's just like, I literally looked it up. Like <laughs> that's fun, what it's, that's what it's called. I think, I guess I, I'm assuming it just means like, it's really beautiful. <laughs> and of course the lighthouse is supposedly haunted. I think lighthouses are built haunted. Yeah. Yeah. They come with a ghost. That's in the specs for them. <laughs> All right. Moving on to the reason why we're here. The incident portion of today's broadcast. On Sunday morning, May 12, 1889, conditions were deteriorating. Wave height and wind had increased, and the ship was struggling to make headway around 18 miles offshore. Hmm. It's important to remember that the Alaskan was never intended to be used in the open ocean. Hmm. The last time she had been out in the open ocean, she'd been a brand new vessel. She's no longer that vessel. I'm seeing some connections here to the Holo Holo episode we did. Yeah, um, actually, that's that's a great point. Where you had a vessel that was built for 
one specific purpose, leisure use in completely calm waters, and then just being pressed into service, you know, crossing stretches of open ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, this this vessel isn't even new. So like all the issues that have that it has, you know, suffered and been through during its career and now trying to take it out uh, to, to challenge the mighty Pacific. Yeah. So just remember, she's been working in these very difficult conditions of the Columbia River. Like the, Colum- the Columbia River bar is noted as one of the most dangerous areas to navigate in the United States. Hmm. You know, there's massive tides. It's a tidal river. There's a lot of stress being put on this vessel. So by 3 p.m. on the 12th, the Alaskan was off of Cape Blanco near Port Orford, Oregon. At this point, it was apparent that the vessel was in serious trouble. She struggled ahead at dead slow speed, and waves began to break over her bow. At this point, the vessel could no longer maintain her direction. Waves were lifting her paddles out of the water, and no forward momentum could be achieved. I see dead slow in quotes. Does that just mean that she is under power, but she's just not making progress forward? I believe so. I don't know if there's like a technical term like mm-hmm. associated with it, but that's my understanding is like she is technically under power, but like mm-hmm. not able to make any headway in what she's doing. Uh, suddenly at this point, the after cabin detached from the vessel. Oh, um, it's large securing bolts oh. are being pulled directly through the deck planking. Of oh, the no. Ship. And like, as we're going to see the deck planking is really the problem here. Uh, so the second officer would lead the crew in damage control. They attempted to use blankets and other items on board to plug leaks that were quickly forming in the deck. However, they were unsuccessful. Uh, so the important thing to keep in mind here is the deck is literally coming apart. This isn't yeah. a problem with the hull of the vessel. Like The hull is actually still watertight at this point, but the deck and like the force structure of the vessel is beginning to come apart in the stress of the water. And there's so much water coming over the side of the vessel because she's Mm -hmm. not meant to be in these conditions that she's taking on massive amounts of water. Again, holo holo connection where, I mean, they don't know what happened exactly, but it probably wasn't a hull failure. It was the fact that there was random holes drilled and cut into her decking and into Mm -hmm. like the sides taking on water that way. Um, So yeah, this is, this is another interesting story here. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like just to be clear, her hull was not breached. This was all of her upper works that were made of wood that were being destroyed by the ocean. So at 6 p.m., it became obvious that the situation was no longer salvageable. The portside paddle box was torn away, and this resulted in multiple holes in her hull. So now we do have a breach in the hull because like, the paddle box is the area around the paddles, and that's being torn off of like the superstructure of the vessel. I'm assuming you're down... A paddle wheel also? Yeah, and like, I don't even think that mattered at this point. <laughs> like, as far as, like, they already weren't achieving any propulsion. Yeah. Uh, so, by midnight, the boilers had been extinguished, and the Alaskan was limited to her emergency sail for any kind of propulsion. Never great when the boilers go out. That's a common theme, I feel like, in a lot of these steamships. So, she did have, like, a sail available? Yeah, kind of like what... um we did last week with the Atlantic, like mm-hmm. how there there was a sail option, but definitely right. like it was not meant to be their main method. 
Uh, around this time, Captain Howes orders lifeboats to be launched and towed behind the vessel. This is the first time I've really heard of this, but it's kind of a smart idea. So three of the four boats would be deployed successfully, and it was decided that all but five of the crew would take refuge in the lifeboats. I like this idea, though, of keeping everyone together. like rather, like rather But trying to maximize the number of people who are already in the lifeboats. Uh-huh. But you're also not scattering three lifeboats to the, you know, to the storm. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're helping everyone stay together, at least. So if, you know, help does come, at least the rescue can be a little quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, the five remaining men on board the Alaskan consisted of Captain Howells, Chief Engineer Swain, the second mate, the steward Al Rawls, and Seaman Denny. And most of those people are pretty high-ranking people on board the vessel. But poor Seaman Denny. (laughs) How did you end up... I'm assuming that's his last name also. Yeah, Denny is his last name. (laughs) But like, how did you end up being the guy they're like you you get to stay maybe he was the best at the job and they're like we want you to stay with us and again this is further evidence like you don't want to be too good at your job like i'm assuming he probably like volunteered or something maybe yeah (laughs) so during the launching of the lifeboats lights were sighted of another vessel and two distress rockets were fired so really this is shaping up to be exactly how lifeboats are supposed to work you have a problem you launch your flares and you get in the lifeboat so they come and pick you up. Kind of like what we talked about last week. And aside here, I like that the notes say de-stress rockets with it. Yes. Uh, yes D, like. Which is fun because like that makes it sound like they have a very different purpose. Like if you're really just stressed out and really anxious about surviving the shipwreck, you can just fire off a rocket to blow off some steam. But if I was stressed about surviving and then another ship <laughs> saw the rocket, I would be less stressed. <laughs> uh, so... At about the same time as this evacuation is going on, a large wave sweeps over the vessel, and the quartermaster by the name of Shieldrup is swept into the exposed paddle wheel, and this results in massive crushing injuries. He's literally mangled in the paddle wheel, amongst all Ugh. these other things that are going on. Ugh. By 1 a.m. on May 13th, it's obvious that the Alaskan would soon plunge under the angry sea. There's really no more like illusion of hope at this point. I don't know if you said this, but was the quartermaster killed by that? We'll get there. Okay. <laughs> it seems kind of like Final Destination-y to get thrown into a paddle wheel and just hamster wheeled around like that. Yeah, that, we'll, we'll get back to him. Okay. He comes up later. Captain Howells would order the line to the lifeboats cut so that they would not be pulled under when the Alaskan went down. However. This meant that the five remaining men on the Alaskan now had no way off the vessel. So, kind of the right thing to do, but also, like, you've kind of doomed yourself at this point, Mm -hmm. in theory. Uh, The vessel would linger for another hour and a half before finally giving up and going under. At this point, Captain Howes and Chief Engineer Swain clung to a fragment of decking. They would witness the pilot house float by with three men clinging onto it. At this, Swain decides to swim for the pilot house, although the captain advises him not to do it. Swain would never be seen again. Hmm. Don't leave your wreckage. <laughs> like, you can't swim as good as you think you can. <laughs> uh, the tug Vigilant had seen these de-stress rockets as they made their way to the scene, 
And it's great that she saw them. However, there's a problem. She's limited by the weather, and she's also towing a manned barge. So she would not arrive on the scene until Monday afternoon. She's just not able to make that much speed. And she has her own problems carrying a barge in this bad weather. She would pick up the three men that were witnessed on the pilot house by the captain. She would also pick up a raft with one body and one survivor in it. And she would pick up the men in lifeboat number one. So the first of the three lifeboats has been recovered. Finally, she found Captain Howes still clinging to the fragment of decking that had been ever decreasing in size due to the battering it was taking in the waves. So the way I read this is, of the five men that stayed on board, three of them survived on the pilot house, the captain survived clinging to the decking, and the only man that would have been lost was Swain, who decided to swim for the pilot house when the captain told him not to. Right. Uh, The second lifeboat that had been launched was actually able to reach shore. So you can imagine the relief there, like actually getting on shore. I'm sure that's still an ordeal, though, of having to get through the breakers. And as we know, the Pacific Northwest coast is pretty rocky, depending Mm -hmm. on where you're coming ashore. Like, that was still a pretty dangerous thing. Yeah. However, lifeboat number three would actually have the worst fate. It was never located. So it could have been swept out to the ocean. Uh, It could have had a problem and gone down. We don't really know. But, like, Um, in theory, you're talking about a whale ship Essex situation where... This lifeboat existed aimlessly for a month at sea. And compared to how lifeboats normally do on the stories we talk about, the fact that one of them even made it to shore is is a pretty successful deployment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's pretty commendable by the captain how he handled this. I think he mm-hmm. put as he made the situation as good as it could be and put the most number of people in a position to survive that he could have. Mm hmm. And even warned Swain, don't swim for that thing. I don't know what story it was. We did a story before where I think the only casualties suffered were in the deployment of lifeboats when they mm-hmm. were going like too fast, you know, against the captain's orders, and they ended up getting, you know, like crushed under the ship or something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we've seen that before where, um, you know, one person does take steps to, you know, be in charge and, and, and give, make the correct moves. Um, and the people that go along with that tend to do fine, whereas the ones who don't are usually some of the casualties. Right. But then again, we also have stories where the, the captain and crew are all leaving the ship and telling people it's fine, like the, uh, <laughs> like the, the Oceanos. <laughs> so, 50-50. So, back to Quartermaster Shieldrup. Mm. He was actually recovered alive, with his leg nearly severed by the crushing of the paddle wheel. Mm. However, he would soon pass away after being recovered and was buried at sea. Okay, that makes sense. So he he survived long enough to be rescued, unfortunately. He passed away, though. So still still a really tough guy. Yeah, I mean, what a way to go. That would be bad. Like, That's never even something I've thought about in all like the steamboat reading. Is like, what would it do uh-uh. to a human body? Give me the water. Give me the hypothermia <laughs> so I don't know what's going on over that, you know? like Maybe. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like at least with the hypothermia at the end, like you, you're you're delirious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, being crushed by a paddle wheel is is just towards the bottom of the ways I'd want to go. Add it to a, a new. Uh, we haven't talked about it recently, but yeah, there's this whole list of ways to be killed in a shipwreck, and this is, I think, a new one for us. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. 
Uh, so the surviving crew were returned to Astoria, Oregon, on the passenger vessel Columbia, which was also operated by the O.R.N.N. So the company had a vessel in the area, and they brought the crew back. The Columbia actually has an interesting story all her own. She's also built at the Delaware River Iron Shipbuilding and Engine Works, which hmm. all the more makes me think that Henry Villard must have just like known somebody or had a buddy that worked there. Mm-hmm. And she's actually notable as being the first application of Thomas Edison's electric light bulb outside of his laboratory. So, like, before it was even in people's houses? Yeah, yeah. I I did not deeply research that fact, but I did see it listed multiple places. Interesting. Yeah. I guess it kind of makes sense. Like, it's still in a contained environment, so, like, yeah. it's being cared for. But I thought that was interesting. I, I could not have told you that a ship would have been the first use of a light bulb. Just imagining, like, one of these stories, a steamboat, like, burns to the waterline because it was using janky early light bulbs. <laughs> Uh, so the Columbia would actually later sink in a collision with the lumber schooner San Pedro off of Shelter Cove, California, with the loss of 88 people. She's definitely deserving of her own episode at some point. I was unaware of uh, this vessel until doing this story, and I quickly read about her and made a note that we will revisit her at some point in the future. Pretty ironic, sinking at Shelter Cove. Uh, yeah. All right, so in conclusion here... In total, 21 lives were officially lost in the incident. And as we're all familiar with, there's potential at this time that the crew roster was not always accurate, as well as the possibility for stowaways on board. So 21 lives is the official number. We don't actually know. It could have been more. I don't think it would be significantly more, but there's always that chance. Uh, You know, it was really easy for people just to disappear at this time, and Mm -hmm. no one really thought anything of it. So a New York Times article published on May 17th, 1889 stated, She was the most elegantly fitted up steamer in the Northwest and cost $350,000. Before starting for San Francisco, she was thoroughly rebraced and her rear guards taken off to allow the water plenty of play. Her forward guards were not removed. The vessel took no freight or passengers with her and refused to allow anyone but actual members of the crew to go down. A number of people applied for passage, but none got on board. The Alaskan was insured for $200,000. So I find it interesting that special precautions were taken for the trip, including modifying the vessel for the open sea and the refusal to take on passengers or (laughs) cargo. It appears to me that the company understood that what they were doing was dangerous. Uh, This isn't a time in history that's noted for safety and concern (laughs) for passengers and certainly not for cargo. I think it's extremely telling that the company went out of its way to decline business when there appeared to be demand. The more conspiratorial-minded might think that that $200,000 insurance policy sure looked good for a vessel that was considered a white elephant. Mm -hmm. I have no proof to back any of this up, but it's just what popped into my head as I was reading the story that... Well, if she makes it to San Francisco, we'll fix her and keep using her. But if she sinks, she sinks. That's either way. I mean, either way, it does make sense. This would be far from the most dastardly thing ever pulled Mm -hmm. in this era of of trying to get some insurance money out of this thing that's, I don't know, borderline useless uh, for your for your business. I I guess I've seen zero allegations of that. But just as Mm -hmm. I was reading, it's like, I mean, it kind of makes sense that. 
you just want to get rid of this thing. And just the fact that they refused any passengers or cargo, like you had a chance to make money on this trip and you chose not to. Whereas if you took that passenger and cargo, you would probably be out more money and you wouldn't just get your insurance money. Like, I don't know uh, what kind of payments were made to the survivors and to the people that were lost, but since they were employees of the company, probably not much. Yeah. So it's very interesting. Something to think about. Like I said, I have zero proof that that is the (laughs) case. Perhaps it was all just a tragic and sad accident, but it kind of makes sense that it was an insurance scheme. Right. So that is the story of the Alaskan. Uh, A little bit more about the Olympian. Uh, She too may at some point also be worth an episode of her own. She would go on to have a long and varied career in the Puget Sound, Columbia River, and even Alaska. She appears to maybe transition to this work a little bit better than the Alaskan did. Ultimately, she would be wrecked near the Chile-Argentine border in South America in 1906. Hmm. So she definitely got around. She was a pretty notable vessel. We do need to get back to South America sometime soon. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about that. We haven't visited South America in a while. So maybe we can take a look at that one and see if it's worth it or something else. But um, Mm -hmm. it is fun to keep those locations varied. Yeah. So yeah, that is the story of the Alaskan. It's a pretty interesting one kind of felt good to return to tradition here a little bit and and discuss one of these. I'm always interested in the Pacific Northwest wrecks. They just feel a little different than the East Coast wrecks uh, in North America. Uh, Something to do with like the remoteness of the Pacific Northwest. I I think it's something to do with the fact from a United States perspective, it's like that's a very late frontier. And so you have relatively modern technology that you don't see in other Mm-hmm. you know, westward expansion type stuff. So it, it gives it a like a weird sort of feel in history. You know, you've got coastlines where there's no settlement big enough to fix your ship, but people are also using electric light bulbs. Yeah, I think that's a good point that the like the post-Civil War feels a lot more modern, mm-hmm. but it is still has the, the last remnants of that frontier kind of story to it. Yeah. So it is, it's a very interesting time. Um. Yeah, so that is the Alaskan. Um, I know I think last episode we told you guys that we would start a series, but this time we really will start a series next episode. For sure. Actually, here, before we sign off, there there was another quote from Villard about Lincoln that I just wanted to, to read because I thought it was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. This is Villard writing uh, his own recollections of meeting Lincoln. <laughs> and he says... Um, He's talking about Freeport, Illinois. He says, I was introduced to Lincoln at Freeport and met him frequently afterwards in the course of the campaign. I must say, frankly, that although I found him most approachable, good natured and full of wit and humor, I could not take a real personal liking to the man, owing to an inborn weakness for which he was even then notorious and so remained during his great public career. He was inordinately fond of jokes, anecdotes and stories. He loved to hear them and still more to tell them himself out of the inexhaustible supply provided by his good memory and his fertile fancy. There would have been no harm in this, but for the fact that the coarser the joke and the lower the anecdote, the more risky the story, the more he enjoyed them, especially when they were of his own invention. I like that quote because like we don't we don't typically think about Abraham Lincoln as like a guy who liked a dirty joke. Right. Seems like he was. (laughs) (laughs) It is interesting. That's that's a very unique take on Lincoln. 
those are cool because like it gives you uh you you see the public side of someone and like all these people are actual humans who who mm-hmm. have you know there's there's things that they think are funny and there's things they laugh at and so yeah i i thought those were cool in terms of uh painting kind of a, a human picture of this person that we see as sort of larger than life most of the time yeah yeah those are always interesting when you get to get the the behind the scenes look at somebody mm-hmm. awesome yeah that'll be it for today um Join us next week as we dive into a big series of shipwreck awesomeness. I will say you'll get a lot of shipwrecks for your buck (laughs) by the end of that series. All right. Well, everybody have a great week and we will talk to you next time.